You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you've got somebody who says they're going to do something, but you're a little hesitant, unsure if they're really going to follow through with it, you may say, will you promise to do that? Will you, will you give me some kind of assurance that you're going to follow through with this? And, and, and the reason for that is because you doubt, you're, you're hesitant in believing that they really will do it. And so that person may promise to do it. Then there's other times when you promise somebody that you're going to do something, not to make sure that you're going to do it, not to keep yourself from changing your mind about doing something, but to give assurance to somebody that you will do it. And that's what God gives covenant for. It's not to bind him to do something in case later down the road he changes his mind. Instead, it's a, it's a sign of encouragement to us that I'm going to do this. I was going to do it whether I promised it or not. There are things that, in interacting with each other, there's things that I would do regardless if I promised to do it to you or not or for you or not. But sometimes that assurance of promise is meant simply for the person to feel relieved that, okay, you're going to come through for me. So God doesn't bind himself to do things through covenant. Instead, he gives us covenant for our own assurance, for our own encouragement, that he will do what he always intended to do. So we've worked through a lot of the covenant uh, covenants through the Old Testament into the New Covenant. And we've been looking at the new realities of the New Covenant, things that are different in the New Covenant, specifically looking at uh, the Holy Spirit. And we looked last time at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We said there's a lot of examples in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit doing things just like he does in the New Testament. We see individuals being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We see individuals uh, being gifted by the Holy Spirit. We see them um, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So we see some of the things that he does in the New Testament also going on in the Old Testament. So the question we're left is, is what's the difference? What's the need for what happened at Pentecost? What's the need for the Holy Spirit coming in a way that's promised by Jesus, promised by the Old Testament prophets? What's the big difference? And I shared with you last time that the big difference that I see between what the Holy Spirit does in the Old Testament and what he does in the New Testament is the outward focus towards others that shifts in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people very inward focused. It's very national, racially based. In the New Testament, we begin to see an overflowing of God's grace, not just with a national Israel, but a grace that overflows to the ends of the earth. To me, that's the drastic difference that takes place in the New Testament. We go from inward focused to outward focused. We saw that last week or last time we met with Jesus's plans to spill out water to his people in such a way that it flowed from them. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter seven, we looked at this passage. In verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see even in John's Gospel the reference to the idea of Jesus uh, 
sending the Spirit with the intentions of these living waters spilling out beyond themselves. And I believe that's the major difference. We said in the Old Testament, there was a continual dripping of the Holy Spirit that sustained the people of God. In the, in the New Testament, it's more like a pressure washer where the water is, is no longer withheld. It's coming in full force. The, the Holy Spirit becomes the physical manifestation of the Trinity, the, the, the representation of the Trinity here on this earth. And we see him unhindered, completely exposed, completely um, allowed to do what, what Christ desires for the Holy Spirit to do in building his kingdom. We're going to see how that continues. That, that mindset, that concept continues into our understanding of the giftings of the Spirit. So this morning we look at Pentecost and the need for spiritual gifting. Pentecost and the need for spiritual gifting. And then in the, com- the next two weeks we're going to look at spiritual gifts from a practical application type standpoint. What does that look like here at Sovereign Hope? And then we're going to look at some of the more controversial issues, some of the giftings that we have to kind of determine what role do they play now that the apostles are gone. And so we're going to look at those views as well in the coming weeks. So the next two weeks, part of it's going to be real practical. How are we going to, how are we going to understand and see spiritual gifts used in our church context? And how are we going to understand some of the more difficult issues that, that are out there, the, the idea of prophecies and healings and um, tongue speaking? We're going to look at how, how to understand that from what Scripture has to say and how that fits into our understanding here at Sovereign Hope. So, Acts chapter 1, and if you want to jot down these passages, uh, these are passages that we're going to be looking at some today and some in the coming weeks. If you just want to kind of read through and start studying on your own, just to get an idea of what Scripture has to say about, about spiritual gifts. So, uh, Romans chapter 12 Verses 6 through 8 specifically, but I would encourage you to read Romans 12 in, in context, to see those verses in context. 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And then 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. The Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. All right, we begin by looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit. I want to see that in context, see the purpose, see what, what was going on around his arrival in the way that we understand it today. Because we said that the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament Holy Spirit was there at creation, so the Holy Spirit didn't begin to exist uh, when Jesus left. Um, But Jesus did say, if I leave, then the Comforter will come. So there was an an aspect, an idea of the Holy Spirit coming in a way that he had not previously been with God's people. Um, What do we know about Pentecost? Just give me some, some feedback real quick. What we already know about Pentecost in general, Pentecost specifically of that year when these events happened. Any already existing knowledge that we have about Pentecost? Okay. Yeah, Pentecost is not a name given to this day that the Holy Spirit came in this way. This day was already in existence. This was a, 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 celebra- a celebratory day for the nation of Israel that had been happening year after year after year after year for hundreds and hundreds of years. So 
when we talk about Pentecost, we talk about one year of Pentecost. Not um, Pentecost was not confined to this one time. This is something that was a yearly celebration. Fifty days after the Passover, what happened in um, Egypt? What else? Okay, the disciples were gathered waiting for the Holy Spirit, like Jesus had told them to. Okay, there were a lot of -of out-of-town guests uh, in Jerusalem for this celebration, which is significant. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 1, and we're going to actually walk through all of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 um, before we get into actually understanding the giftings of the Spirit, because I want us to see I want us to see what Scripture has to say, hopefully without preconceived notions and ideas, um, because it's very easy to come to these texts already wanting them to say what we want them to say kind of thing, from both ends, both from the charismatic standpoint and from the non-charismatic standpoint. Um, Pentecost is a festival that took place 50 days after Passover. What was significant, though, about 50 days after Passover? It wasn't just, hey, remember Passover? That took place 50 days ago. Let's celebrate that. That'll be good. No, like there was a reason for the celebration. What took place 50 days after Passover? Uh, that was tied into it, but there was something significant about 50 days after the Passover, the very first time Passover happened. What happened 50 days after? The what? The giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, we've been talking about covenant, and had we not been talking about covenant, that may not feel as significant as, as it should feel now. There was a covenant that was instituted 50 days after Passover, it's not by accident or coincidence that God chooses to really institute the new covenant in its practical application on the very celebratory day of the old covenant. That's not by accident. That's by design. Everybody's there to celebrate the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law. And now we're introducing a new covenant where the law is fulfilled. Christ has come. Christ has accomplished. It's not by accident that God chooses this day. God could have chosen any festival that he wanted to. He could have chosen Passover to bring the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't. He chooses to kill his son on the very day that the Passover lamb was to be killed. It was in the context of understanding that we need salvation from death. That the death angel is coming, that the the death is coming as a consequence of sin and rebellion. And it's only by the blood of a a perfect uh, lamb that can spare us from that wrath. It's not by accident that that Jesus is, is slaughtered on the cross in that context. And it's certainly not by accident that God brings the Holy Spirit in the context that we understand him today. 
on the day that they would have celebrated the old covenant. That's significant. A festival celebrating the giving of the law 50 days after Passover. I think God chooses Pentecost as the timing for the giving of the Holy Spirit for this very reason. He wants to change the mentality of his people. That you now live in a new covenant where things happen differently. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the first book he's talking about? Gospel of Luke. Okay, so Luke continues to teach Theophilus about Jesus and his, um, his kingdom. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I'm not making this up about the difference in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Old Testament. Jesus is communicating what the difference is here. He doesn't say, look at it again, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be able to perform miracles and healings. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will speak in tongues. He doesn't say that either. That's not the point of emphasis in Acts chapter 1 and 2. He also doesn't say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will get the gift of administration. That's not the point of emphasis. And sometimes we want to harp on the minor details of the gifting of the Spirit, and we miss the overall purpose of the Holy Spirit coming. Notice he also doesn't say that when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll start to be regenerated, that you'll start to persevere, that the Holy Spirit will start to guide you. Like, I believe those things were already happening, and we saw them happening in the Old Testament, maybe not to the fullest extent that we now see them in the New Testament, but even those things aren't emphasized by Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, Wait before you go do anything because you need the the gift of administration or the gift of evangelism. He doesn't say wait because you guys need to be regenerated because you're not even saved. He doesn't say wait because you need the Holy Spirit to persevere. I believe the Holy Spirit was already active in doing things. But specifically, Jesus says wait. Because when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. There's a special empowering that comes at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people and continues to come upon God's people for all those that are saved in the future. And the design of that empowerment is for us to be witness to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, when he had said these things as they were looking on, he he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said... Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way 
as you saw him go into heaven. So we see the ascension. Jesus says the ascension is necessary so that the Holy Spirit can come. In verses uh, 12 through 14, they appoint Matthias to take the place of um, Judas, who, who had died. So they're back to 12 in number now. Um, we skip down to verse 21. Well, we won't read through that. That's, that's continuing through the idea of Matthias being numbered with them. Let's go ahead and go to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit's coming is described in two words. It's described as wind and fire. What we have is the inauguration of the Holy Spirit working the way that we understand him to work today. These references of wind and fire go back to what Jesus was already referencing previously. In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as wind. He says in verse 8 to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I believe the picture that we see with the wind here in Acts chapter 2, is that the Holy Spirit is a powerful force that cannot be controlled, that does what it wants to do through the instruction of the rest of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is not bound to perform and do what we think the Holy Spirit should do, that much like the wind, the wind exists. You don't always see it, but you see its effects. You see that it does what it wants to do, and Jesus communicates it that way. So the Holy Spirit, he does what he desires to do, which is always in line with what Christ desires. That picture of wind is given to us. The Holy Spirit comes as wind. He comes as fire. In Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What do you think the picture of fire is meant to give us here with the Holy Spirit coming? I've explained to you what the wind Pictures. What do you think the fire pictures for us in relationship to the Holy Spirit? Okay, there's refinement that comes through fire. What else? Think in terms of what they would have used fire for back then, things that, that we don't have to use it for today. Yeah, it would have been used for light. So I think the idea of the picture, too, is that with the Holy Spirit coming, there's enlightenment that comes. There's guidance that comes differently than what was being experienced before. People in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament would have relied far more on fire than we do today. I mean, we put together a fire when we want to go out in our backyard and hang out outside. But we rely on electricity. We rely on other forms of light today. But the idea of fire had much more importance for them than it does for us today. It gave them, it provided for them a lot more than it does for us today. And I think we can see pictures of what the Holy Spirit uh, does through these pictures of wind and fire. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
Now, this is significant. I believe this is the, the perfect storm for the Holy Spirit to come when he does. Jesus has already communicated to the disciples, we've got to get the gospel out. We've got to get the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You're talking about a, a, a hundred people, a few hundred people max to even carry that commission, specifically given to these 12. And the task would be very overwhelming. The thought of how in the world are we supposed to get the gospel? I mean, imagine if, if we gathered a couple of hundred people here this morning and there were no other believers on this earth or, or there was information that no other people on this earth had. And I said, okay, we've got to get this information to everybody. We would look at that and we would say, are you serious? Like there, there's an unbelievable amount of people on this earth. How are we supposed to get this information to a bunch of people that don't have it? Jesus says that, that I'm going to go with you. I'm going to empower you to do this. And then Jesus comes through with that empowerment. He doesn't just entrust it to these individuals to start some kind of movement out of Jerusalem. He brings the world to Jerusalem. See, the Jewish people had been scattered from Old Testament disobedience, and some of them had never come back to their land. They had just set up shop and stayed. So through the different captivities, the Babylonian captivity, there were Jewish people that were dispersed, but they, they, they hung true to their religion. And they would journey back to Jerusalem for celebrations like the Passover, like Pentecost. They would make that trek. They would make that journey back home, even though their home was now somewhere else. Many of these people would have been raised from birth in these other places. They'd never actually lived in the promised land. But their moms and dads had taught them to return to the promised land to celebrate the God that they worshipped. So now you have people from all over the world coming to Jerusalem on the very day that the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. This isn't by accident. This is the absolute perfect setting for the Great Commission to go out quickly in the way that Jesus had communicated to his people. The perfect storm for sending the gospel out in a massive effort. effort. Jesus has already communicated in Acts 1-8 that gospel advancement is the major thing that he's concerned about. It's the main thing that they were waiting on. It's the major change that happens when the Holy Spirit comes here. It says that verse 6, at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. In your notes, first, God's presence experienced. The Holy Spirit comes upon these disciples. They come outside. They've experienced God's presence in a new way. And number two, God's commands are obeyed. We see God's presence experienced by his disciples. They come outside and they begin to obey God's commands. The disciples begin either speaking in different languages or they're speaking and they're being heard in different languages. And there's varying opinions about what actually is happening here. Whether the disciples were actually speaking in different languages, was the miracle the aspect of the speaking or was the miracle the aspect of the hearing? I'm not sure that it really matters 
in the overall context of what's important here. What's important is that these people heard what they were saying in a language they could understand. They came to this city to celebrate something, speaking a language that people in this area wouldn't have, wouldn't have spoke. And some of you have been to other countries before, and it's difficult to communicate, but you can go to other countries and experience other countries and not be able to speak that language. So it's not out of, out of the ordinary for us to think about these people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate something and speaking a language that everybody else didn't speak. We've all, a lot of us have experienced countries in that way. It's difficult. You can figure out a way to communicate. You can figure out a way to get around. You can find people in that country typically that speak English. These people come and they're astonished that these normal people are speaking their language and they're understanding it in their language. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Somehow they were able to identify these individuals as people that should not be capable of speaking their language. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Again, are they speaking it or just being heard this way? We're not totally clear. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. There's confusion over how they're able to do this. The, the illogical conclusion is they must be drunk. Um, they, must be, they must be influenced by alcohol. It's the same illogical conclusion that the Pharisees reached when they saw Jesus casting out demons. Oh, he must get power from demons. Why? Like why would he cast out demons if he got power from demons? Nobody gets more intellectual when they drink. Like nobody becomes more in tune with their, with their brain and their knowledge and their ability to do things when they're influenced by wine. And yet these people have no explanation for it. And so they're saying, look, they must be drunk because they're not speaking normally. God's commands are obeyed. The disciples begin speaking in different languages. People from other nations understood what the disciples said. And then Peter begins to preach a powerful sermon proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the command that gets obeyed. The command was to go and make disciples to share this information. Peter immediately begins to preach. That's a major shift, a major difference in the life of Peter that only 50, 60 days before was not there. Peter's cowering in a corner, scared to death to talk about Jesus, scared to even be named as a friend of Jesus. And in Jerusalem, where Jesus is crucified, he stands up and begins proclaiming that you people killed Jesus. I mean, this isn't a whole lot of time for Peter to mature. It's not that Peter grew up in his faith over 50 days. It's not that somehow uh, two months later, all of a sudden, Peter's just a super Christian that wants to go boldly proclaim Jesus, whereas before he was scared to death of being put to death. No, it's the Holy Spirit has come upon Peter for the purpose of spilling out into others, obeying this great commission. Peter says, you guys can hear me? Well, then I've got stuff to tell you. Because I was told to communicate this to the ends of the earth. 
conveniently, you guys have come from the ends of the earth to be here today. I've got information to share with you. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I'm going to stop there real quick, because remember when we said last last time, repent, or a couple times ago, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember we said that part about the baptism can be taken out, that it's not a, a required part of that sentence, that you can take it out and it doesn't change the meaning That's important, too, in the context of uh, infant baptism versus not infant baptism because infant baptism wants to base their belief on verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. 
The promise isn't about baptism. The promise is about repentance and receiving the Holy Spirit. If I can take that phrase out and it doesn't change anything, then it doesn't change anything either about what he says after that. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Number three in your notes, God's purposes fulfilled. God's purposes were fulfilled. God sends his presence. He promised it in the Great Commission. I'll be with you. God's commands are obeyed. Make disciples. Share the gospel. God's purposes are fulfilled. People respond. People respond to this sermon by Peter. 3,000 people got saved. That number's significant too. Because, I mean, later on we see that Peter preaches again and even more than 3,000 get saved. So why 3,000 on this day? I think it's significant because when the law was given and the people of Israel rebelled, They set up a calf. They worshipped a false god. 3,000 people were killed. They were there to celebrate Pentecost. They were there to celebrate the law. But for the studious individuals, they would have remembered 3,000 people were killed on that very first day when that law was given. The law brings death. Christ brings life. 3,000 people saved at the institution of this new covenant. That's significant. I don't think that's by accident. I think God's, God's showing both his justice in the Old Testament and he's showing his grace in this New Testament account. He's showing that while he punishes sin, he makes provision for sin. And 3,000 individuals who walked into Jerusalem on a path of destruction to hell, who were not saved, who were bound by a religion of, of, of misunderstanding to where they had reinterpreted it to, we've got to be good to earn God's favor. They had walked in with that belief and understanding and they leave new creations. They leave clinging to the grace of God, communicated in this sermon by Peter, that Jesus came to do what you're incapable of doing. He's been raised to life and you have a responsibility to submit to him as Lord and Messiah. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I think it's significant, too, that we're not really told what wonders and signs are being done here. Nothing is done to detract from what really took place on this day. That the gospel was proclaimed by an individual who was afraid of the gospel just 50 days ago. That is the significant life-altering change that the Holy Spirit brings upon these disciples. Yes, they were speaking in tongues, but that, that, that gift on that day was used for a greater purpose. And we don't have any indication here that people that got saved began to speak in tongues after they got saved here. It says that instead they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. It sounds like they just began to become legit church members. They started devoting themselves to being legit church members. We're going to go to church. We're going to learn from these guys. We're going to let them teach us. We're going to apply it. And we're going to live out our faith with these other people that are claiming to follow this Jesus. 
It says the wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It starts to spill out everywhere. This living water that was, that was given to God's people is now overflowing to the masses. That's the significant change that happens here at Pentecost. Inward focus to outward focus. Yes, we see some tongue speaking going on here. Yes, we see some wonders and signs. But that's not the point of the passage. There is far more written account devoted to the proclamation of the gospel and people responding to the gospel and carrying on with normal church life. There's no prescription here about how we're supposed to now expect just crazy stuff to start happening in our church services. That's not the emphasis going on in this passage. The expectation is is that we should expect individual church members to start spilling out their lives into the lives of people that don't know Christ. We were to expect when someone becomes a Christian that they become a bold proclaimer of the gospel. Whereas previously they may have been scared to talk to people, scared to interact with strangers, that all of a sudden now they are empowered by a Holy Spirit who fills them in such a way that they boldly proclaim Christ. Gospel advancement. Jesus said, wait for it in Acts 1.8. When you get the power of the Holy Spirit, you will become my witnesses. The church began in unity. They took care of each other. People were getting saved daily. What you also see here is, as you continue through the book of Acts, you don't really have people scared about talking about the gospel anymore. What we see through the narrative book of Acts, time after time after time, bold proclamation of the gospel, bold proclamation of the gospel, that's what's consistent. What's consistent through all the the epistles. Yes, we're going to look at some isolated accounts where some, some some things are talked about. But what we see consistently in all the epistles and all through Acts are people boldly proclaiming the gospel in every context, every church setting. Yes, there's some speaking in tongues in, in in the Corinthian church. We didn't even talk about tongues in the Thessalonian church. What we did talk about is their faith going out and it having massive effects. They were boldly proclaiming the gospel. That's what's consistent all through the New Testament. That's what I believe has to be normative for our church. If we're going to claim to be a New Testament church that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we participate in the new covenant. It's not that we should expect that maybe we should have tongue speakers and prophesiers and miracle workers here. It's that our church should be filled with people who boldly proclaim the gospel, who look for opportunities to have gospel conversation, who interweave the gospel in everything that they do. And I think what we have to ask ourselves and I have to ask myself is, am I living like an old covenant member or a new covenant member in the area of boldly proclaiming the gospel? Am I an inward focused believer who is not yielding to the Holy Spirit in my life, not using the power of the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim the gospel? The question isn't, should I be speaking in tongues or not? Should I be like healing people or not? Like, do I have that gift? That's not the question to really be asked at this point. 
The question is, why am I not boldly proclaiming the gospel? Because that seems to be what the filling of the Spirit was supposed to produce. The consistent fruit that we see all through the New Testament. And when people were yielding to the Holy Spirit and doing this, people were getting saved daily. They were, they were responding to this power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to look at the need for spiritual gifts in the context of the local church because there is a need for this. There is a, a need to not just say, okay, we're supposed to be gospel proclaimers and that's all that the Holy Spirit's indwelling means for us. No, the Bible does talk about the giftedness that comes through the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see that. But before we get to that, I want to try to clarify the difference between baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go to it in depth, but I want you to just understand the difference as we continue to talk about this. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens at salvation. We don't believe here at Sovereign Hope that you get saved and then you wait for a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was not normative what happens here in the book of Acts. They were living in a transitional covenant period. The Holy Spirit had not come yet. And we see similar accounts here in the book of Acts where people get the Holy Spirit uh, seemingly uh, after they had been believing faithfully. But again, they're living in a, in a time where there's a transition happening between covenants. We don't see that continue very long after these first few accounts. We don't see Paul writing to churches and saying, hey, you guys need the Holy Spirit. I, you're believers, but don't forget you need the Holy Spirit too. The expectation becomes that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is is consistent. It's, it's, it's what happens at salvation. The Holy Spirit, he's the, uh, we've already said he's the permanent um, fixture, fulfilled promise in the life of a believer. He's our Christ-like comforter. He's the primary manifestation of the Trinity. He's the ultimate rival to our flesh. The Holy Spirit comes to us, and he's the ultimate rival to our flesh. What we see is that the Holy Spirit wages war against our fleshly desires. And we need that in our life. But at salvation, he brings us life. He opens our eyes to the gospel. He teaches us the gospel. He helps us to understand these spiritual realities. He convicts our soul. He changes our heart. He enables us to believe. He cleanses us from past, present, and future sin. He indwells us forever. He provides assurance to our doubts. He assures us that we truly belong to God, and he's the guarantee of our future hope of salvation. If you need verses for all that, I can give them to you afterwards. That's what he does in saving us. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens to believers now after Pentecost. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is not an extra thing that happens later. It's what salvation is. And then we are commanded in Ephesians 5.18... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit regularly. This is something that we are to do. Baptism of the Holy Spirit happens to us. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we're to seek. It's a command. And it doesn't mean that we seek more of the Spirit. It's not that we need an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. What it means to be filled with the Spirit is to allow the Spirit to possess more of us. Not for us to possess more of the Spirit. Nobody's lacking the Holy Spirit in this room. The only thing lacking is how much of us we are yielding to the Holy Spirit. 
Being filled with the Holy Spirit is us allowing the Holy Spirit to possess more of us, yielding to what he desires for our life, not yielding to our flesh, walking in the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. So as we continue to move on, if we're talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about salvation. If we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, we're talking about your biblical responsibility to yield to the Spirit's work in your life, to allow the Spirit to possess you, not for you to try to grasp hold of some extra experience of the Holy Spirit that you're lacking. Some churches teach that. There's no evidence for that in Scripture. Holy Spirit indwells us fully as believers. But we're now to be filled with the Spirit by yielding to His control in our life. All right, the need for spiritual gifts, and we'll just kind of introduce this today, and then we're going to look more extensively at spiritual gifts um, in the coming weeks. What is a spiritual gift? Number one, it's any ability, any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit, any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in ministry for the church. Any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in ministry for the church. That's Wayne Grudem's definition. A simpler definition, number two, a God-given ability for service. A God-given ability for service. Now, there's disagreement amongst theologians as to are these natural talents that are given to us at birth, are they supernatural talents that strictly come at salvation. I don't think Scripture is real clear about this. Um, If I had to say what's the, the main idea is I believe that what's being communicated in the New Testament is use your talents, your abilities, and your gifts in ministry to the church for the proclamation of the gospel. If you got them at birth, so be it. If you feel like you have new talents and abilities that came after salvation, that's fine too. We'll take those abilities as well. Let's just use them for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Again, Scripture talks about this stuff, but it's not the primary focus of what's happening in the New Testament. We don't get extensive teaching on this stuff. And because of that, I think we have to minimize the amount of importance we place on it. Meaning, it's a shame that there are divisions in evangelical churches over spiritual gifts. There are churches that put way too much emphasis on it, that the New Testament doesn't seem to put emphasis on. There are obviously other churches that are terrified of this and and completely stay away from it completely. We want to be a happy medium in the middle there. We want to acknowledge that Scripture talks about this stuff. We also want to acknowledge it doesn't talk about it a whole lot. So we're going to talk about it, but we're not going to allow it to dictate what our church is. Our church has to be known for proclaiming the gospel, not for the spiritual gifts it believes in. We don't have churches in the New Testament known for their tongue speaking. They're known for their proclamation of the gospel. That's the major shift in the New Covenant. Not that they had abilities to do miracles and wonders and signs. That was not the point of emphasis. The point of emphasis was people were getting saved daily. Some of those things were being used in some churches. 
But overall, it was all about the gospel being shared. Uh, Number three, if you want to spell this Greek word out, C-H-A-R-I-S-M-A, charisma. This is where we get the, the term charismatic from. It simply means, when it talks about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, this is the word that's used. It simply means grace gift or a gift of grace. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, we have to be reminded that it flows from God's grace. Any ability and empowerment comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why the the disciples had to wait for it. They couldn't go out and start preaching this stuff and get 3,000 people saved before the Holy Spirit came. They needed the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter wasn't strong enough probably to stand up and start preaching this sermon without the Holy Spirit. Jesus even promised his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, you won't have to fear standing up in front of people. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say. It's not long after this sermon that Peter is presented before uh, difficult counsels that want to kill him and his friends, and he's boldly proclaiming truth. The fulfillment of what Jesus said. Jesus says, you'll, you'll appear before these people. You won't have to fear it. You'll know exactly what to say. And it happened. All about the proclamation of the gospel. All right, what's their purpose? I'm going to give you seven purposes real quick that are going to kind of set the stage for where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Number one, to substantiate the claims of Jesus and his disciples. To substantiate the claims of Jesus and his disciples. These things are tools. They're not an end in them of themselves. The goal wasn't to have everybody doing spiritual wonders and signs and tongues. The goal was much bigger than that. They were given to substantiate the claims of Jesus and his disciples. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These things point to the declaration of salvation. It was to substantiate the claims of Jesus and his disciples that this new covenant had started, that things were to be understood differently, Jesus being the fulfillment of everything they were waiting for. Number two, to mutually upbuild and edify individuals in the church. These gifts are given to mutually upbuild and edify individuals in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Chapter 14, verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. The goal, again, being the uplifting, the the upbuilding of the church. In verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 26, 
What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. In Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he held, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." This is why I believe we've got to move in the direction that we're trying to go with our accountability groups. It's a false assumption to think that any amount of elders in this church can do all the work of the ministry. Because as we're going to see, we are all gifted and we're not all gifted the same. And nobody has all of the giftings of the Holy Spirit. They are distributed according to the will of the Holy Spirit. And to think that one, two, or three individuals in this church can handle every aspect of the church, can handle all of the encouragement, all of the counseling, all of the discipleship, it's a false assumption and it's not biblical. And we have to fight this as leadership. We have to fight the tendency to want to hang on to things and say, ah, we should probably handle that one. Like that's, that's probably something that we need to take care of. Now, obviously, we've got to use discernment because there are things that we've got to handle as shepherds and overseers of this church. But we've also got to entrust that the same Holy Spirit indwells you, that he's gifted you, that you're not just um, rookie Christians that have a lot to learn, that you have been gifted. Now, we have a responsibility to equip you and show you how to use your giftedness. There's training and instruction that has to take place. But the end goal is, is that we have to equip you to do the work of the ministry or else we get burned out and we quit and this church closes up. That happens all the time. Pastors say, enough's enough. I'm done. I've been doing this for 13 years. I've invested everything I have. I've been trying to do it all, and i got to get out of here. i got, I got to take a break. I posted an article in the city this morning that I want you guys to read. It talks about the Superman pastor fails because the Superman pastor, Superman elders think they can do everything. They try to do everything. They try to live up to the expectation that they should be doing everything, and they end up stop doing anything. And they walk away and they say, enough's enough. I got nothing left. My tank's empty. In teaching on this, it's not just to satisfy your curiosity. Why don't we speak in tongues and why don't we work miracles? The end goal is to equip you, to help you see that you are, in, you are gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to partner in this church for the proclamation of the gospel and the building up of each other, for you to use the talents and abilities and gifts that God has given you to encourage those that are sitting next to you today. That's where we have to go with this. Number three, to disperse responsibility from leaders to members. To disperse responsibility from leaders to members. We've already looked at Ephesians 4, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution... 
The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to do this duty. They went and found people who were being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who had been gifted in this area, administration, people that can handle issues and problems, problem solvers, people that can figure out how to do something. It says, we've got to find some of those guys and give this task to them and entrust them to handle it. Now, I think it's important they found people that were gifted to do it. They didn't just go find a couple of people that weren't doing anything else in the church to do it. That's important, too. They didn't just go find anybody to do this. I believe they discerned who will do this and do this well and do it in such a way that we can really give it to them and not have to keep following up with them on it. And I hope that you can trust in this church that if you're asked to do something, you are being asked after much thought about it, that you are identified as a person that we believe can do it without the expectation that we're going to have to follow up and stay on you to get something done. That in asking you to serve in this church, we want to be leadership that can identify people who would do good at something, that can be entrusted with something in the same way these people were. We want to identify people who are full of the Spirit, who are capable of doing things like this, and being able to pass it off, trusting that you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit, you've been equipped and gifted to do things like this to disperse responsibility so leaders don't get burned out. Number four, to serve others. To serve others, Romans 12. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. We want to use them to serve other people in our church. These gifts are designed for the upbuilding of others. Number five, to advance the gospel until Jesus returns. These giftings, these things that we're talking about in the next couple of weeks, they are designed to advance the gospel. That is what we have to be about. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 1, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says you're not lacking in anything that you need to accomplish everything that Jesus gave you to do before he comes back. He has gifted us to fulfill the great commission, the commission that he said would be fulfilled before he came back. Number 6, to glorify Christ. These gifts are meant to glorify Christ, not to glorify man. We know from Jesus' own mouth that the Holy Spirit comes to point people to him, not to point people to the Holy Spirit. One error that we see in churches that highlight the giftings of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit oftentimes gets more attention than Jesus Christ in those churches. And that's not what the Holy Spirit's there for. The Holy Spirit is not there to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit, anything that he chooses to do in the church is not to make a name for himself. It's to make the name of Christ larger, bigger. It's to make his name more treasured. And if you ever find yourself in a church where, where the Holy Spirit is being elevated above Christ, there needs to be cause for concern. 
not because the Holy Spirit isn't special and unique and awesome and deserves to be to be praised and talked about, but because the Holy Spirit, that's not his purpose. And that comes from Jesus. So if there's more attention being placed on the Holy Spirit than Jesus, then we've got a problem. And that's one issue that I find with, with those that, that lean more towards the charismatic mindset is that I hear far more about the Holy Spirit when I discuss things with them than I hear about Jesus. Not that they don't love Jesus, not that they don't preach Jesus, but things seem to be far more about the Holy Spirit than about Jesus, and that's not what Jesus said would happen. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says the gifts are to be used for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's their purpose. That's why they were given by the Holy Spirit. Number seven, to be exercised under leadership of church of the church using biblical principles. To be exercised under the leadership of the church using biblical principles. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. These aren't just a smorgasbord of gifts that you get to go out and just use and do whatever you want to with. There, there is order there is direction for how this is to be done. It's to be done in the context of the local church, under local church leadership, following biblical principles. The Corinthian church had gotten all out of whack, and we're, we're losing sight of this. I think it's important to know that these are not meant to serve as a sign of spiritual maturity or holiness. These gifts are not given to be a sign of spiritual maturity or holiness. If gifts are used to promote individuals, we've lost the purpose of what the gifts were given for. Who is gifted? Who are the ones that are gifted? What we see from Scripture is that every believer is gifted. Every believer is gifted. Number one, gifts are distributed by the Spirit's will to all believers. Gifts are distributed by the Spirit's will to all believers. 1 Corinthians 12 7 and 11. The Holy Spirit gives them, not me, not Tyson, not Adam, not anybody else in this church. We don't get to distribute gifts. Number two, believers may have multiple gifts. We're going to look at the list of gifts that Scripture talks about. While believers may have multiple gifts, they don't have all the gifts. No believer is fully gifted by the Spirit where he doesn't need somebody else. Number three, all the gifts are important, which makes every individual church member important. You don't get to sulk and claim that I'm not needed here. These people don't need me. I don't have anything to offer. 
Scripture presents to the contrary. And then number four, no gift is possessed by everyone. I think we already said that. No, sorry, this is different. No one gift is possessed by everyone. So the expectation isn't that everybody always has this gift. So not everybody has all the gifts, and not everybody has one gift that's the same for everybody. Does that make sense? Okay. 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll look at this passage more extensively in the coming weeks. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This is talking about don't be disappointed because you're not gifted like somebody else. The whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. So the first aspect of that passage deals with, don't be the guy who wants to be everybody else. Recognize your uniqueness, that you've been gifted, you have a part to play in this local church. The next part is, don't be the guy that says, we don't need that guy. Like, we've got this person who's awesome. We've got this person who's really gifted, always gung-ho, always ready, eager to do things. This person shows no initiative, shows no real abilities. If they walked away, we wouldn't be any the worse for it. This passage says, no, 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 no. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable... We bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All are, are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Those are all rhetorical questions. The answer is no. But earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you still a more excellent way. The application for us this morning is that everyone is gifted for service. Everyone is gifted for service. It's not a question of can you serve. It's you must serve. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One commentator said, church is not a place for you to come watch a movie and eat popcorn. It's a place for you to see yourself as a soldier that has a role and a duty to play. This isn't a place where you come to watch a movie and eat popcorn and be entertained. It's not a place that you determine to come if you're not too tired that day and if you don't have something else going on that day. Being a part of a local church obviously extends beyond Sunday, but it certainly includes Sunday. 
And it's not a place that you decide to come and be a part of and be involved in during the week if it fits into the rest of your schedule. It's a place for you to view yourself as a soldier that has a necessary role and part to play. These passages are saying that every single person is needed if the church is going to thrive. Your presence, your involvement is crucial to the success of this church and to the proclamation of the gospel. Every single one of you has been gifted in a way that you are needed here at this church. And your absence plays a role in the advancement of the gospel. Your lack of involvement plays a role in the lack of advancement of the gospel from Sovereign Hope. When everybody gets on board, when everybody sees that they have a role to play, not just a few individuals in the church, but everybody in the church using their gifts and abilities for the furtherance of God's kingdom, I believe we can begin to see the gospel go out from Sovereign Hope and people begin to get saved regularly. Whether we ever have tongue speaking or miracle working, signs and wonders ever take place here. Because the major difference in the New Testament is that people who are saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit proclaim the gospel boldly. That's the major difference. And the question that we have to ask through these next few weeks, are we inward focused or outward focused? And are we outward focused in reality or just in our minds? Do we, do we want to claim to be gospel proclaimers because we know the gospel, we love the gospel, we read about it a lot, we talk to our saved friends about it, so naturally I must be a proclaimer of the gospel. Or are we really proclaimers of the gospel, like Peter was when he walked out and said, oh, you guys can understand me, i got something to say. Because we walk out every day and have people understand the language we're speaking. Peter was, Peter was waiting for people to understand him. Peter got that power through, through the Holy Spirit. We walk out our doors every day with people that can understand us. Are we proclaiming the gospel the way they were supposed to? Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the truth of your word. And I'm thankful for what happened on that specific day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. God, I'm thankful that you chose to teach us about the new covenant even on the day that you chose to institute these things. God, I pray that we would see that the old covenant has passed away. The obligations of law-keeping are no longer there. And no longer are we waiting for somebody to fulfill those obligations. No longer do we have to uh, live with the mindset that sin has not been totally forgiven. God, I pray that we would live like Peter and these disciples who understood the law was dealt with, their sin was dealt with, they were freed up now to respond in joy, in love. God, I pray that we would not be enamored with the minor details of the Holy Spirit and His giftings. Instead, Father, we would be enamored with the overall goal and purpose of what the Holy Spirit came to do in our life, and that's to make Christ known. God, I pray that we would be faithful to to be a church that submits to the Spirit's leading in our life. God, I pray that we would um, be a church full of individuals who are looking to serve and use the uniqueness that you've given to them. God, I pray for our leadership that we would be faithful to identify those that you have gifted to uh, accomplish things that we know need to be accomplished. 
God, I pray that we would all see ourselves as an important part of this church, an active participant, not just a casual spectator. God, I pray that no one would say here that because I'm not that person, because I'm not that person, I'm not needed. I don't have to be there. I don't have to be involved. My absence doesn't affect anything. God, I pray that we would all understand that we together make up the body of Christ and we are all needed for the body to function properly. God, we recognize that uh, a man without one arm can still accomplish a lot of things. So God, it's not that your plans and your purposes will be thwarted by our disobedience. But God, we also recognize that when the body is functioning like it's supposed to, like it was designed to, that the maximum amount of glory can come to you. So God, we pray for that this morning. We ask for that this morning. Pray that you would guide us over the coming weeks as we study this together. I pray that you would allow our church members the, the discipline and the desire to be reading and studying on their own so that we can come together for the purpose of seeing our lives changed by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for the work that you're doing here. God, specifically, we want to praise you and thank you this morning for uh, the work that you've been doing in Adam and Tiffany's life and their family's life and the provision that you've been making. God, we rejoice this morning uh, that you've provided work for Adam. God, we pray that you would continue to provide that work. And God, that you would allow the, the security that comes from that now to uh, invigorate that family once again, that you would um, allow their their family to, to thrive through this time now. God, I pray for uh, just continued guidance for Adam as he leads his family and in, 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 uh, in now having provision. And God, that you would um, just continue to be glorified and honored in that family. Father, we thank you for answering prayer. We're thankful that you're a God that provides for us. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for all of our families, not in the way that we expect you to, but in the way that we know you've promised to. And God, I pray that we would be faithful with that provision. Point others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.